Hello, I'm Ollie Henderson. Welcome to Take My Advice. Sometimes in life, things don't go exactly as planned, and so it has been over the past few days, as the two final episodes of the series I planned were scuppered somewhat by technical issues. So, as constraints often lead to great results, I'm hoping that whilst unplanned, today's special episode containing two speakers will prove to be great. I'm going to be speaking to both of my guests about various issues related to the future of work, but all of them have a focus on diversity. My first guest is Zoe Young. She's the founder and director of work design consultancy Half the Sky and works with large organisations advising on flexible working and inclusion strategies. She published the book Women's Work in 2019, which focuses on how mothers manage flexible working in careers and family life. And she's now got the important job of interpreting the long-term effects of the pandemic for the research project work after lockdown. My second guest is Nishita Diwan. She works with various organisations to reimagine themselves as learning organisations. Uh, I, I came across Nishita through her work with B Corp, which is an organisation that gives certification for businesses around social and environmental performance. Both conversations provide some fascinating insights into the challenges that people have faced this year, but more importantly, they look forward to how we can better design businesses and organisations for the future. I'd love it if you could subscribe to the podcast and, of course, check out my newsletter too on Substack. Enjoy! Zoe, thanks very much for joining me this morning. I thought we'd get straight into it by you giving us an introduction to you and your career and your area of focus. Sure, I am a academic and a consultant. I lead Half the Sky, which is a research and evidence-based consultancy specialising in employment, diversity and inclusive flexible work design. And that reflects my academic, my research interest, which is all around work-life balance, parenting and careers, flexible working. And last year, I published a book called Women's Work, which is about how mothers manage flexible working in careers and family lives. And that was based on my doctoral work at the University of Sussex. And through that research, I I traced the ups and downs of life for 30 women professionals as they combined career and caring through, you know, flexible working models. And right now, with Half the Sky, we're one of three partner institutions delivering a big and long (laughs) research project called Work After Lockdown, which is looking at how we're all going to (laughs) work following the COVID-19 crisis and the sort of experience that many of us have had of working from working from home during lockdown and whether that is going to change fundamentally shift what were formerly office-based jobs before. And, And in your book, certainly, there was some success, I think, from women who had been able to achieve and I'm not sure balance is necessarily the right word because I got a sense that sometimes that word is problematic in that it yeah. suggests that you can find this perfect world where you can balance every single thing. Mm. And I think, in, well, most people's experience, it's not realistic. Now, what I'm really interested in, though, is how different things look a year on from publishing that book. Mm. What progress have we seen mm. and how does that relate to the work after lockdown project that you're involved in? Yes, well... Flexible working is is one of those slightly slippery concepts <laughs> defined in lots of different ways. In the broadest sense, it 
flexible working is is for me it's about workers having control over how many hours when and where they work but there's a balance with that in terms of being able to tailor that to individual needs and circumstances and then also what the business needs so not every job can be done from home that's why we have workers on construction sites and doctors in A&E you know that some some jobs are location constrained and that's why overall like during lockdown I think our figures in the research show that it's about 28% of the UK's employed workforce were working from home during lockdown and working from home is one dimension of flexible working so it is the place bit there's adjustments to hours as well so we've got full-time part-time annualized hours adjust adjustments for schedules as well so when in a day in a week in a month in a year you work and so there's those sort of at least three dimensions that need to come together to form somebody's working pattern and through my research when women are choosing a flexible work option and we can go on to talk about just how much choice there is in that but it is usually combining hours schedule and and location flexibility and so it all works together and what's happened under under lockdown is that a great many of us haven't had any choice about uh, where we do our work and to some extent when we do our work either so boundaries have kind of collapsed around um, what a working day looks like which has been easier for some people more difficult for for others Appropriate workspaces within the home have been hard to find, you know, for people to do, to talk privately about confidential matters um, without the kids in the background or colleagues and co-workers who maybe live together. That's also been a, um, a challenge. So there's so much in this flexible working space that has has potential to have moved on through through lockdown, which is what we're we're trying to trying to find out about because previously demand for flexibility was high and rising they kind of fairly ill-defined but really hard to get because employers don't advertise what flexibility is available for example which serves to kind of fix people in jobs that they may have outgrown because the labor market appears everything looks full-time and permanent at an employer's premises so there's all sorts of sort of there were all sorts of difficulties around it so whilst demand was high the match between um, the demand and the supply of genuinely flexible jobs you know particularly at those higher levels in organizations it didn't match it didn't match and actually there's some work that was published this week by an organization that i've done some work with in the past called timewise to show that actually the, the number of job ads that make any mention of whatever form of flexibility right. might be available in it, be it hours, be it schedule, be it place, has hardly moved. Now that could be, you know, it's, it, I think their figures were around one in five job ads makes mention of, of what flexibility is available. Yeah. But that could be as much a reflection of you know, impending recession <laughs> and also the nature of the jobs that are being recu- recruited for at the moment, which is less likely to be in the female dominated sectors of retail <laughs> and more likely to be in logistics, say, <laughs> that 
at the moment. That's a, a surprise because there is a sense among people, and this is a generalisation, of course, there's a feeling that suddenly the attitudes towards flexible work have fundamentally shifted you you can't move can you for surveys telling you that people want to work primarily remotely and or in this hybrid fashion Mm -hmm. so is it perhaps that companies it's an assumption that companies will allow you to work flexibly or is it that companies aren't willing to commit that yet because they just don't know how the dust will settle on the other side of covid i mean presumably there's lots of factors but i'm really interested that hasn't filtered through Um, it's a bit of a knowledge gap. It's a bit of a know-how gap in terms of how do we make flexibility work without, you know, the arrangement we agree for one person might be to reduce their hours or to leave at four o'clock or something like that without that having a negative impact on the person next to them and the rest of the team. Yeah. You know, where how do we actually redesign the work of a group of people who need to work together such that everybody gets the flexibility they need? And that's the bit that's not being done. That's the gap. I mean, yeah, if I might just add to the load of surveys that are out there, I mean, the Work After Lockdown project is is looking at this and we've got a survey instrument, the experience of working from home under lockdown and individuals' preferences for continuing to work that way. And, yeah, the sorts of figures we're getting is that, you know, something like 7 out of 10 workers want to continue working from home but not in a pandemic (laughs) and in a hybrid model you know in that they value the the time and cost savings on commuting for sure but they miss the informal social contact and zoom is no uh, replacement it seems for certain types of social interaction for certain kinds of activities so people miss those spontaneous that might be about nothing to do with it might be testing out ideas thinking you know how to problem solving that sort of thing is really difficult to achieve when every meeting appears to be either 30 45 or 60 minutes yeah and I think that's the thing isn't it the surveys Mm -hmm. I see tend to offer this superficial view of people time saving commuting etc I think the difference I've seen thus far with the work that you're doing is Mm -hmm. actually digging into what the implications of this new way of working are and certain structural changes which need to happen within organizations but across work more generally and the idea of design is really interesting to me can you explain you you mentioned work design and we've talked about job design before can you explain what the principle the concept of job design means to people who might not be familiar with it well uh, for me it's it's a an intentional approach (laughs) to understanding the the requirements role and the and matching that (laughs) to the needs of an individual (laughs) and that's the sort of it's been but it's been very much um, managed on on a kind of one-to-one process under the previous flexible working policies and flexible work flexible job design was this sort of negotiated process but what was always missing was what happens to the work that's, you know, the 25% of hours that somebody drops, where does that work go? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, I would, you know, with, with the uh, design, job design process is, is, as I say, it's about an intentional 
systematic look through the requirements of the role and the flexibility that can be attached to that on each of those dimensions. I mean, you you about the sort of structural change that needs to to happen to enable enable flexibility. This is this is absolutely right because, and the biggest one is of course how you measure measure success. And so, if your metrics are pointing to are based on sort of in, in kind of miles on the clock, <laughs> um, presentation thing that that kind of it drives that kind of behaviour. And many organisations, despite their best efforts through policies and programmes to to introduce flexibility, they they sort of work against the basic metrics of of success and performance in those in those places. I mean, I do a lot of work in the in the legal sector and in in law firms, you know, and where you have a billable hours model. It's incredibly hard <laughs> to 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 break into that and and say, well, working less hours <laughs> is actually going to give you better results. <laughs> yeah. that, that the, the maths don't don't work. Yeah. So when I when you introduce design into that, it is just an intentional tailored look branch yeah. about how we do how our service how we do what i do and we do what we do and how wedded to models of of time and space how and why are we clinging to those <laughs> in yeah. order to deliver our, our, our services and what what have we got to play with those dimensions and and the way that in my book and in the work that I do with organisations, I often talk about the need to flip the default. So the default model of work, and I'm, I'm largely talking about sort of managerial and professional work. That's that's the kind of the focus of my my research. But the default model of work in the sort of post-industrial era was, you know, nine to five at employers' premises full-time and the ideal worker notion of the ideal worker was somebody who was devoted to that model and operated that model as if they had nothing else going on in their their lives and that was the blueprint and how many organizations grew and became successful but that's just one model and if you consider all the possible dimensions of flexible work so hours and schedule and location I worked out that you come up with potentially 300 other variations on on that model so that tells you a few things it tells you the scale of the challenge of change for organizations oriented all their processes around one model of employment of their of their people and then are faced with this potentially 299 other ways of working and how to give that flexibility to people but maintain the control that an organisation needs to be able to guarantee the quality of, you know, and consistency of what it, whatever it produces, you know, widgets yeah. or services. Um, so there's just that the scale of the change can be quite um terrifying but if you operate as many organizations have done through this period and 
and actually a bit before the more progressive ones were, were flipping the default and saying, right, we're going remote first. And if we think to operate remote first, what do we need to do? Every member of our organisation can contribute and do their work. What do we need to do? And then that usually starts to shine light on the technology enablers, the communication, nation management that you need so people can access the information they need at, the, at any time. Yeah. So, and, and that's all the, then you start to see if we're remote first, what needs to change in all of those areas? But I guess the hard bit is around behavior and the organizations, always the hardest bit to, to change because and that is something actually that probably has changed and working from home is this is the trust piece so i think previously there was a little bit of uh skepticism about the uh uh, ability and the focus of people who made acceptance of it on a friday (laughs) everybody was doing that but a reasonable lack of trust and particularly towards parents, actually, who, who, you know, some unenlightened managers will assume that parents are working from home and caring for children at the same time, which, you know, apart from early, usually the case. Um, so we, we may have got over some of those trust issues and, and, and actually people have proved that a great many more jobs than were previously thought can be performed by a distributed team remotely from an office location and just from a a practical point of view so I completely agree with everything you just said and I think the issue with those managers particularly but organizations more generally Mm -hmm. that still rely to some extent upon presenteeism it's just kind of virtual as in people using employee monitoring tools for example this seems to be a distinct lack of understanding about what good performance means and you talk about inputs and of course the opposite of that is outputs or outcomes as I often talk about it being the determinant factor of whether someone's actually doing their job effectively and there's plenty of studies to show as you suggested that time is not the key factor in success actually if you organize your time effectively between periods of focused activity versus collaborative activity Mm. depending on the time of day which best suits you depending on your personal circumstances all of those factors together when managed correctly tend to deliver better outcomes but my experience of this and certainly conversations i'm having with different businesses are often that people struggle with determining what those outcomes are Mm. and it's that for me was like the first step in even allowing the possibility of flexible and personalized work to happen because whilst and I've talked about this before but there are certain jobs for which outcomes are very clear you know if you're Mm. in a sales pre there's certain steps you take which ultimately leads towards you selling more in theory and if you're a programmer you might write a certain amount of code in certain deadlines but there are certain jobs which are less it's less clear what the specific outcomes might be. So I'm just wondering if we could talk with some practical examples about how a manager, how leadership team would start thinking in this way, Mm. what sort of outcomes might not be immediately obvious to us, but are effective measures of progress being made on a day-to-day basis or month-to-month or any longer period? I think it's much easier to get a handle on outputs, isn't it, (laughs) than than longer-term 
contributory impacts on yeah. something. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I guess uh, there are jo- but there are jobs that are part of a process, and there are jobs that are producing jobs. So I think it starts with a kind of ca- uh, this huge categorization of 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 roles and a kind of mapping of how they align to outputs and outcomes and impacts and indicators and whatever we're talking about and i think that's where it that's where it does that's where it does start absolutely i mean if i think about that in the academic sector in universities the translation of of that your your impact is in in the number of there's a number attached to your to your publications and a, a number of hours that you are required to teach so teaching is an input the the outcome successful <laughs> learners yeah. successful students they could stop there but for research a certain number of publications is very much an output it doesn't necessarily demonstrate the, the, that knowledge and the way it's codified on a page, on a screen, on on any other outcome. So it is incredibly hard. Um, yeah. You do have to start somewhere and starting with output is not a bad thing. But where does that leave the jobs that are part of a process? You know, a part of the, a part of the machine of the organisation. I want to discuss the the specific demands on women mm. because if the traditional model was that women were the homemakers, we assume that we've evolved beyond that, particularly as men are at home more. But your research would suggest that isn't necessarily the case. Is that a fair description? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I mean, I so in women's work, I was speaking to these women probably five years ago takes a long time to do research and then publish it so but you know if we peg it in time about about then women in that sample were not 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 everyone was in a relationship with a man most were but I think they would they pegged their relationships as this in this sort of in between space <laughs> transitional say not traditionally fully egalitarian either it was in a sort of transitional space where the the demands and the rewards of work and and careers were were considered you know equally shared within a heteron a, a woman had just as much work and have a career as a man so that bit was all right but when it came to childcare the the pressure was felt uh, and very much placed upon women to adopt that role and to adjust their employment because of that role. Mm. and there's lots of studies that show women as mothers have responsibility for the kind of cognitive emotional development of of their children and and men have responsibility for fun and and that's the way it kind of shakes shakes and and women carry the greater mental load of and tend to be the kind of organisers, orchestrators, um, rememberers of all the things that need to kind of happen as a in family life, and through those, and, and the maintainers of relationships on behalf of their children and through the extended family. 
So whilst there's lots of studies about time use in terms of the domestic division of labour that show that, you know, fathers today are doing a lot more than perhaps your and my father might have done <laughs> sort of a few decades ago in, in terms of minutes, but it's qualitatively good tasks on the domestic yeah. and childcare front. And we've seen that through lockdown with both women and men being involved in homeschooling. But when men and both women and men report in surveys that they are taking responsibility for homeschooling. But when you ask men on, you know, how much time that takes up, the average is two hours a day. It was two hours a day for men. And the average for women was five hours a day. That's a big difference. And this, the outcomes from this experience of crisis, you know, whilst the health outcomes have been more um, challenging and bleak for, for men, <laughs> the social and economic outcomes for women are extraordinary. That was my conversation with Zoe Young. Now on to the chat I had earlier this week with Nishita Diwan, who I asked to introduce her background and her area of focus. I work at the intersection of future of work and organisational design and mainly work with clients to help align organisations with the 21st century. So recognising that there's so much constant change going on around us. How do we redesign or reimagine the organisations in a way such that we can stay relevant and such that we can build connected organizations. And I've got a framework that taps into a number of different elements, but essentially it's about reimagining organizations for the future and transforming organizations into learning organizations. Can you just explain what you mean by connected organizations? So we hear con- connectedness in many different contexts. What do you specifically mean by that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think increasingly now, the connective tissue is what I discuss with organisations. So whether it's in living organisms, whether it's humans and other forms of living systems, there is a connective tissue. And that's what holds everything in place. And I guess in organisations, sometimes we talk about soil. So what does what are the nutrients in the soil? So the things that are probably invisible, they're not tangible, but what are the what is in the environment that allows people to feel connected to each other? So it's not just connected to the organization and in alignment with the organization and what the organization stands for in the sense that you don't want to just be in an organization where it says collaboration on the walls, but people don't feel a true sense of collaboration in their daily working practice, but also connected in the sense of peer-to-peer connections and not just in the teams that you're part of, but really trying to break through these silos to form connections and pathways across organisations, across silos, across hierarchy. And presumably those organisations that have better connectedness in the way you described are those that have survived, first of all, these last nine months, but also thrived as well. Is that right? For me, connection is all about trust. So it's about how do you build that trust trusted environment, the integrity um, in what you're doing and how you're behaving and how you're externally marketing yourself as an organization, also with internally how you're actually behaving. You don't want that disconnect. So that's trust is a really big part of 
the work that I'm doing and I think it's the main ingredient in building that connectivity for organizations. Yeah clearly diversity has moved up the agenda even more so this year than it had done previously. You, you described that there's often perhaps a mindset which considers it problematic. Did you think that comes from fear or nervousness or do you think organizations just aren't set up to adapt quickly enough to the world that's changing around them? Yeah, I think, again, a really good question. I think, especially this year, there have been quite a few triggers that have catalyzed this movement around diversity and helped it rise in the kind of CEO agenda. But I think it's also, I think basically there's a lot of solutions out there in the market that are short-term fixes. And as a result, organizations want to make change because they're complying. So either they're complying with the societal kind of, the way societies are reacting to the news that, you know, that happened in the US or the social justice elements that we're seeing in the US and the UK or the inequality that we're seeing as a result of COVID. So there's this react, like we need to react and we need to react quickly. In that reacting quickly, another trigger is compliance. So over the last couple of years, the UK government has got the ethics pay gap, the gender pay gap, so it's okay we need to comply but we also need to react and so all of these the reactionary kind of actions and I guess what I try and get organizations to do is like pause and really stop and really understand there are things happening that we need to react to but how can we actually before just coming at it from a reactionary mindset in terms of we must act quickly let's pause and let's think about what is our organization where are the areas that we're doing well? What are our needs? Before we just start to spend money on solution, let's really map out our needs as an organization and reflect on how we're doing. And by framing it as an opportunity, let's see how embracing diversity and inclusion could help our bottom line. It could help that our talent retention. It could help how we are perceived externally for prospective candidates, for our you know, audiences, our customer segments. So there's a whole kind of breadth of factors and I really see it as a lateral opportunity across the organization that organizations can take advantage of. But first they just need to pause and get out of that kind of, let me react as fast as possible and put a statement out there as fast as possible. You need this period of reflection to really understand your organization first. When we had a chat the other day, you were talking about cognitive diversity yeah. and it's pretty well established within management literature, for example, that cognitive diversity within team is a significant influence on the success of that team. The more diverse being, the more likely to succeed. So I'm interested to hear what you would define in the various types of diversity that you'd include in, in the conversation and how those different elements can add value to a business, both in the short and the long term. Yeah, it's one of those questions where it's the, de the definition of diversity is not, there isn't one single definition that we all attach to or buy into. So I guess the way I try and talk about it more is around having that diversity of perspective. And the reason why I talk about diversity of perspective is because I recognize that there is a spectrum of diversity. So starting on one end of the spectrum from visible diversity a lot of the conversation is still focused on what can we see so we can see often we can see gender we can often see race 
sometimes we can see age, sometimes we can see religion. So there are things that we can see. You can see physical disabilities in some cases. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have invisible disabilities. So the things that you can't actually see. So whether it's what class is someone from? What neighborhood have they grown up in? Are they from a city? Are they from a regional suburb? Are they from London? Even factoring in your organization, what proportion of people do you have from the city, the metro areas versus from the suburbs? So that links to accessibility and how are you offering access to those who perhaps don't live in a main city? And then there's a whole, I'd say, the spectrum of the axes of diversity that are invisible is actually infinite. So political party, like what's your political affiliation? All of these elements form part of our characters, form part of our perspectives, and all of these enrich us and make us, give us those unique kind of perspectives. So in order to really have that diversity of perspective around the table, you need to recognize that it's not just visibly what you can see. So it's not just the fact that I'm a woman, I'm Indian, I'm considered a minority. It's actually all the other layers of invisible axes that define me or that are part of my identity that link to my lived experience as well that would bring value to an organization. So it's really trying to get organizations to see the whole spectrum of visible diversity and invisible diversity. And then to support that, I talk about inclusion alongside safety how do we design safer spaces that encourage people who are perhaps junior in an organization perhaps minorities perhaps introverts to actually speak up and have a voice but also to be heard so clearly there are manifold differences between individuals circumstances and different organizations challenges but if you'll allow me to just ask a Simple question and again, very generalized question. Do you think that remote work has opened up the conversation about diversity and inclusion or do you think it's potentially hindered any progress that was being made before COVID? You have chat functionality in meetings now. So on one hand, you have people who feel actually protected and will share through the chat that might not actually voice that, voice their opinion. So in a way... I've seen the chat functionality is inviting people to speak up or to share more than they otherwise would in physical meetings. I think the remote, the link for being remote is forcing people to recognize their personal and professional identity as one, given the blurring of the situations and the context in which we're living and working in. And I think that is leading to in some cases, like a sense of empowerment in terms of this is what I believe in. And that is leading to people speaking up in the workplace, people pushing back, people actually, I talk a lot about, I do talk about soil, I do talk about roots, I talk like people developing stronger roots in terms of this is who I am, this is what Mm -hmm. I believe in, because all of a sudden we're seeing people become more whole, whole in their identities because the boundaries are blurring between work and life. Yeah. Is there anything which you'd suggest doing which can make a very quick difference in terms of day-to-day practices? Because I guess there's at one extent you've got those day-to-day habits and day-to-day norms which are established. And then the other is this kind of slippery idea of culture and evolving that. And presumably then the larger the organisation, 
the bigger the job of actually shifting the fundamental culture. For those entering the workforce in 2030, the average person will need to reskill themselves between eight to 12 times to stay relevant in their career over the trajectory of their career. And I think I've done a lot of work with the Future of Work Centre at the RSA around reskilling, um, mm. looking at the future of retail and looking at other sectors. And essentially, it's a shared responsibility. So I could argue that there's a role for the government to play in terms of reskilling um, and supporting the supporting with training and reskilling for people in certain types of jobs. Then there's a role for the employer to play in terms of providing the means to allow your employees to actually continue to develop and continue to retrain and build new skill sets. And then there's also a responsibility on you as the individual to invest in your own um, learning and development. But if you look at the way the world is changing and if you look at the knowledge economy and you look at, I used to work at Uber and since I've left, one of the things Uber's done is they created a whole learning portal for the drivers so the drivers can access open university courses and they have credit to actually learn because people are realizing that actually what's keeping our people happy, what's keeping our people co connected to us as an organization is if we are investing in their long-term learning opportunities. And I think the caveat around learning, which is really important in my work is I'm not just talking about allocate a thousand pound budget per employee for learning and let them go learn. I'm really talking about thinking about learning as a system. So it's not just the individual learning, but it's the peer-to-peer -peer learning and therefore it's the knowledge sharing. And mm. if you're creating a learning organization by default, you should also be creating a teaching organization where people are learning from each other and teaching one another because the best way to learn is to teach someone else. So it's going deeper into just, hey, allocate the budget per employee it's actually recognizing how do we create that flow of learning and the flow of information throughout our organization as well so i'm hearing you talk about a lot around psychological safety being key in loads of different situations both in individual meetings but just within the context of an organization as a whole particularly around experimentation and failure i also experienced myself and i've read about and heard a lot of people talking about the importance of community which has arisen out of us having to work remotely and change the circumstances under which we're working every day that feels important to this conversation as well whether it's communities of people from a similar background or whether it's communities around people with similar interests within an organization can that be a good facilitator to encourage that type of psychological safety and that type of communication which leads to improvements and developments within a company yeah if i had to break down what is community or what are the ingredients again i come back to trust so for in order for that community to form you need to create that trusted environment the trust happens on a if we're colleagues in an organization so it's one-to-one -one, the trust between us but then it's also between us in a group so it's from one to many and then it's also trust from the leadership to the organization so there's different kind of structures to the trust but I think community is important to build that community again I would I would focus on how do you build the trust in order for that community to form because communities are active and passive or there are pockets of active communities but to have a true sense of community then you need to have that sense of belonging 
and breaking down community. And then to your question around safety, I think there's a hierarchical component to it, which is where it gets can get a bit complicated because I think given the structure of our organizations being typically hierarchical or departmental, then those who need to lead this kind of movement towards creating safer spaces are those at the top. So there needs to be an understanding and a buy-in around the value of if I were to create a safer environment, firstly, how do I do that? And then secondly, what is the value? So if I was to do that, really explain to them what's the value of creating that safe environment. But there are so many examples out there, again, linked to DNI. So this whole framework is overlapping, actually. It's not one topic at a time, but it, it's all interconnected. But for example, for safety, you've seen organizations when it comes to diversity and inclusion release, whether it's adverts, whether it's products that are discriminatory and they've gone out to market and it's at the point when they're actually being sold in the shop that they've received huge backlashes. So how can you put this on your how can you promote this? How can you sell this? And I really feel like in these huge organizations that I'm sure someone along the way recognized that there was a risk of discrimination if that product was to make it out there. But whether that person was the minority, whether that person could have been the intern, but obviously they weren't senior yeah. enough to have that insight. But perhaps it was someone at a lower ranking in the organization, but they didn't feel comfortable at any point to hold their hand up and say, hold on a second, I think there's a red flag here. So leadership and hierarchy plays a big part of creating that safe environment. So Nishita, just to finish, if you could give a business one piece of advice, what would it be? I really think the future with the way the world is changing with the way the future of work is evolving I really think that cultivating that culture of learning and knowledge sharing so it's not just learning is really key because I think that's what will retain good people so one of the reasons I've ended up you know leaving formal employment and setting up on my own is because I didn't find an environment where I felt I was learning enough or I was growing enough and I actually realized that designing my own portfolio Mm. career, designing my own consultancy allows me to set aside a day a week for learning and for continuous development because I can carve out my four days of paid work supported by my one day of learning and reflection. I think that in order to retain good talent in your organization, you need to provide opportunities for learning and opportunities for growth, especially how the reskilling revolution is evolving and the pace of that. And with that, Series 1 of Take My Advice has come to an end. I'd like to thank Nishita and Zoe for joining me on today's show. And thank you too to all the other guests who have made this first series. A great success and a really enjoyable experience for me. I hope you've liked it too. You can still subscribe and the new episodes of Series 2 will drop into your inbox in February. Until then, you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is called Future Work Life. It's on Substack. Links in the show notes. Have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year.